Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and um, I'm very excited today again for the second time on the show. I've got um, as a guest Dr. Francis Wardle. Um, you might have heard a previous episode where he came on to talk about his book, Oh Boy. Um, which is excellent. And if you didn't listen to that episode, go back and find it. Um, but today we're going to talk about an article in his in um, a recent episode, episode, no, issue of Child Care Exchange, um, Exchange Magazine. So welcome, Dr. Wardle. Thank you. What would you like folks to know about you before we start talking? Um, just that I've been in the early childhood field for pretty much all my career. I'm currently an instructor for Red Rocks Community College in the Early Childhood Department. I write a lot, both exchange and other publications, and that's about it. Um, so we're going to, and I have to clarify, I always call it Childcare Exchange because I've been reading the magazine for so long, but it's it's officially Exchange Magazine now, so I want to make sure I get that in there. So the article that you wrote was in the May-June issue, and it's called Unpacking Developmentally Appropriate Practice, um, in, and it's it's a response to the new, a partial response, I guess, to the new um, Developmentally Appropriate Practice position statement that NACI put out. Um, But I want to start with this quote from the conclusion of the article, actually, um, which you say, to avoid what it considers cultural bias, the new NACI document, Developmentally Appropriate Practice, does not include the term best practices. I believe this is a mistake, as there are clearly some absolutes regarding how we should work with young children. Um, So I'm going to let you, I guess, just speak to that first, and then we'll we can jump into some of the specifics that you're talking about in the article. But why do you feel that that this this was a necessary thing to write? Well, two reasons. One is that every profession, every field, whether it's plumbing, whether it's the legal field, whether it's nursing, whether it's um, other fields, have best practices. It's one of the um, codified approaches to helping people understand what should be going on and providing a standard, providing a example and exemplar of what the field should should seek, should achieve. And for NACI to say we shouldn't be doing that, I think devalues our field, and our field is devalued enough given that we don't even pay people. <laughs> but to, uh, to then say that we're not going to say that our best practices in the field suggest that either we don't know what we're doing or we don't have the guts to say this is what we should expect or this should be the goal uh, of the field in certain areas. So that's the 
basic underlying reason that I wrote the article. Mm-hmm. But the second one is that I do believe there are best practices, and I do believe we should set those out and set expectations for our teachers and our administrators and our policymakers so that we don't end up creating um, very negative environments, negative expectations, negative uh, practices for our kids, our teachers, and uh, our families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I when I first read it, I sort of understood where they were coming from because it seemed like that statement that we're not going to talk about best practices um, came from the idea that most of the research that we base things on when we do things with children or teach children was was sort of conducted with um, uh, middle class white families. Um, so it's not always indicative or reflective of of the diversity that we see um, in early childhood programs. Um, but but I think you're right. It, it didn't sit right Let with me Let me jump either. in here because, yeah. because this is kind of a contradiction of the very statement. Yeah. I agree with you 100% on research. In fact, I tell my students, most research is done in university towns, mm-hmm. be they State College or Lawrence, Kansas or Fort Collins, uh, Colorado. Who are they done on? Not only white middle class, but uh, families, but graduate students, Mm -hmm. family professors. So it's a very biased sample, which is why I don't support this mantra of evidence-based learning. Yeah. But this is one of the things that NACI supports, is the evidence-based learning. So yes, the evidence is skewed. It's incredibly skewed. Yeah. But I don't support that. I support we need to look at Piaget and Vygotsky and Erickson and Bruner and other theorists and also what works in the field. Mm -hmm. So I simply disagree with that. But even if you are concerned about the uh, white middle class bias of our field, uh, you can have best practices that acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. You can have best practices that say um, a best practice is to talk to parents and understand their cultural um, uh, backgrounds and include that in your policies. Mm-hmm. That's the best practice. Right. Which I, I felt like it was sort of contradictory in the statement because they started with that idea that, um, you know, we're not going to talk about best practices, but then they still include the section that's um, it's something like, Oh, I don't have it in front of me, but um, uh concepts of child development that should inform our practice. And they list several yeah. pages of that. And I, I sort of yeah. thought, well, what's the difference then? <laughs> You're saying- exactly. Exactly. And the ultimate, uh, ultimate um, end of this discussion is we have no philosophy. We know have, have no practice and we have nothing to tell you, period. Mm-hmm. End of story. Do whatever you want. Yeah. So it, it sort of comes down to um, the only thing guiding us are, um, standards for normalization, you know, for for, for normalizing yeah. children and standardizing children, and um, that really concerns me greatly. Yes, that's a whole lot of discussion. Yeah. <laughs> so in in your article, you talk about um, the work of Jerome Bruner, and um, and and you use the ideas of positive instances and negative instances to talk about this, this idea of best practice. So, um, so, so would you talk about that a little bit? Who is Jerome Bruner? Why should we read him? Yes. Uh, Jerome Bruner, in my estimation, is after John Dewey, the greatest American educator of all time. And one of the things that upsets me is most people in early childhood have never heard of him. Mm. And he, uh, 
did a lot of work starting with the Woods Hole Conference in, in uh, the 1960s, and the Woods Hole Conference was a response to the Russians getting Sputnik in the air before we got anything in the air. <laughs> so they had this great big conference, and he was in charge of it, and he wrote a, um, a book that came out as a result. And in that book, he had several ideas about how to reform education. Uh -huh. and one of these ideas is the positive and negative instances. And the idea is that when you're teaching any concept, let's say you're teaching a dog, you teach children what a dog is and what a dog isn't. So mm -hmm. the negative instance is, is two legs. doesn't have two legs. The positive instance is four legs. Mm -hmm. Negative instance is, is a tail. Is no tail. Positive instance is tail. And in this way, you create this concept of what a dog is and what a dog is not. Mm -hmm. And this idea can be used for everything, including what I'm discussing in this uh, particular article, which is what is a positive inst instance of discipline? What is a negative instance of discipline? And obviously, a positive instance is what we should try to achieve in terms of disciplining our children, and a negative is what we should not be doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a tremendously easy approach in terms of practice for teachers to look at and say, no, we should not be using uh, belittling, belittling statements. No, we should not be yelling at kids. No, we should not be punishing a whole group. Mm -hmm. What we should be doing is helping children understand cause and effect, helping children understand the impact of their behavior on other children, particularly if they're trying to make friends, those kind of things. And it's, it's a very handy way of understanding what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. And, and to me, the positive ideas are our best practices and the negative ideas are um, things we shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. I remember the very first um, edition of the, of the developmentally appropriate practice book included sections that had essentially charts of examples yes, of yes. Um, appropriate practice and inappropriate practice. And then with the next edition, they changed that. And, and part of their thinking was, I guess that um, the, the those examples were too black and white and weren't allowing for um different elements of diversity or um and isn't that a little insulting on our teachers it is and and even now as i read back and i look at the things that were listed as inappropriate it's it's difficult for me to imagine what what sort of um cultural or family or social context those things would be okay in right exactly and and the the impression you get from the NACI document is anything goes depending on cultural context, <laughs> and that's simply not acceptable. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. I uh -huh. was a Head Start director for years, and I had a, a mother. Uh, I worked really well with parents, and I had this mother just talking about her son, and the mother, the white mother, looked at me and said, "How's my son doing?" And I said, "He's doing fine. He's doing well in the classes." And she said, "Well, if he ever gets out of." Um, you know, does anything wrong or does anything that's a problem, I give you permission to hit him. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, I immediately came back and said, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. But according to the NACI document, it appears that that's okay under certain <laughs> contexts. Right. And and I think, I think if we said it that bluntly, I mean, you just did, someone would say, oh, no, that's not what it means at all. But it could definitely be read that way that... Yes. 
if, if this is a, a value of that family, then we need to take it into consideration, regardless of what we know about the impact of spanking exactly. on children. Exactly. And, um, and that's, that's part of what makes it so hard for me. Um, I, I just don't feel like that. Yeah, but the other thing is, and this is, is so, um, again, contradictory, if you look at the anti-bias document, recent anti-bias document, it's full of best practices. It's full of you should mm-hmm. do this and you shouldn't do this. Yeah. So, you know, how can you say on the one hand we don't have best practices and on the other hand, if you don't do this, you're not anti-biased? Yeah, yeah. It's very confusing. I feel like yeah. it's not as useful a tool for just your general frontline direct care early educator as past versions have been. I, I, I agree with you. And I also think that I liked, I think, I think it was the third edition when it said there are three factors to consider yeah. when you're looking at uh, DAP. One is the biological development of the child. The second is the individual differences. And the third is cultural context. Yeah. And each should be given equal weight. Well, it appears to me that they have thrown that out and said that cultural context trumps everything else. Yeah. And I simply don't agree with that. Yeah, I think they still list those three things as core considerations, but they've they've definitely weighted um, the third one with the rest right. of the document. Definitely, right. yeah. And and I don't want to, and I know you don't. I assume you don't either want to sound like we are sitting here saying ignore a child's culture. Um, no, it's one of three. Yeah, right, right. There, there are things that we need to take into consideration. But the other interesting thing, and I need to say this because I think it's really culture is not understood. Uh-huh. Just because somebody from a particular group treats their child in a certain way doesn't mean that's a cultural attribute. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, it doesn't mean that it's a positive cultural attribute. And I'll give you a good example. I had, I am so lucky to have foreign students in my classes, and I have one from what is now Myanmar. Uh-huh. And we were talking about play, and we were talking about how important play was and how children should be allowed to play. And she got very interested and, and said she, she liked it. She liked the discussion of play. And then she said, in my culture, children are not allowed to play. Mm. And immediately there was a disconnect in my mind is saying she comes from a culture that doesn't allow play, yet she is very attracted to the idea of play. And I said to her, well, what's going on here? And she said, it, and I quote, in my country, there's been so much fighting and so much of people, the opposition um, taking children, Ooh. that families say your children cannot go outside to play. Mm-hmm. So the culture against play has nothing to do with play. It has to do with you don't want your kid to be kidnapped. Mm-hmm. So we have to understand where some of these values come from. Yeah, I think for me, that's that's what it what it comes to when I'm trying to figure out the cultural context, that third core consideration for a child's social cultural context is, is figuring out what the values are so that I can maybe find a point of connection with the family, but not necessarily that kind of anything goes and whatever you say. Right. And we also know from, from (laughs) one of our jobs as early childhood people is to help educate families about the best way to raise their children. Mm Mm-hmm. 
How can we say, but if it's cultural, we're not going to intervene? That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I struggle with that. Fun? <laughs> I struggle with that. I really do. Well, um, I don't really struggle with it because yeah. uh, my wife was an African-American woman who had the traditional view that uh, uh, of punitive punishment, uh-huh. and it was the first big fight we ever had. Uh-huh. And we, she came to understand that it was not a good way to raise kids. Mm-hmm. Now, you can argue that I was imposing a colonial white view on raising my kids. I was not. I was re- imposing what I believed was the best practice for raising any kids. Mm-hmm. And I had no problem with that. And my <laughs> wife did, you know, didn't either and yeah. became more of an advocate of using non-punitive approaches to discipline than I did. Yeah. I think, and so that's that's one of the areas that you gave examples of um, in the article. You gave some positive and negative instances um, regarding discipline, but you also yes. did self concept and early childhood curricula. Um, so I don't know if you want to pick one to give examples of or to talk more about, or we we can look at all three. But well, you know, I think the the one one area that is most um... Uh, problematic right now is the curricular area. Mm-hmm. We have every state has standards which are obviously best practices, and they are not, in my view, um, positive, and they are mm-hmm. used by most states and by most early childhood programs as a curriculum, yeah, not as recommendations. And yeah. I think that's incredibly dangerous. The best practices for Curricula is to start with the child, which is what John Dewey said, and start with the child's experiences and build curricula, build activities, build uh, exercises around what they're interested in, what they can do, and then obviously move over to the Vygotsky and make sure that they have activities and challenges a little above their ability so they move up to the zone of proximal development. Mm -hmm. But to assume that every five-year-old has the same zone of proximal development is just asinine. Yeah. Yeah. We, they talk, and, and this is in this, the DAP statement too, and, and Bogotsky's talked about and zone of proximal development is talked about, but they, they talk about individualizing, but then the ultimate goal is standardization. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. The whole standards movements uh, contradicts what we know about early childhood. It contradicts yeah. Piaget. Yeah. It contradicts Erickson and it contradicts Vygotsky. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, NACI and other early childhood organizations support standards, and I think that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, so, well, so can I ask you to talk more about, you've, you've used the word dangerous several times, and I agree, yes. but can I ask you to talk about what the dangers are? Yes, the dangers are that you, two sets of problems. One is that we uh, end up making learning unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And children have, what, 18 years of learning ahead of them or something like that if they go to college. Mm -hmm. And if learning is unpleasant at five years old, they are not going to continue to do it for 18 years. They're going to quit. Right. And we need to make learning pleasant. We also need to make learning um, tied into the child's uh, way of learning and not the... um, idea of learning that we as, quote, experts think a child should learn. Uh Uh, The second area of danger is that we're putting more and more kids in special ed because they're not meeting those standards. Yeah. And we know 
from research that kids in special ed have much higher chances of dropping out, much higher chances of being bullied, much higher chances of not being successful. Mm -hmm. So we're just going in the wrong direction in both those areas. And I think that's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the um, what's happened is we, we talk a lot about individualizing and meeting children where they are. But if the ultimate goal is to get them where we think they should be, regardless of, you know, where the starting point is, um, we, 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 there's no way to not be in a deficit model exactly with and children of, all the time we, we need to start and i mentioned it i think in the article we need to start with getting rid of the entire idea of school readiness yeah or more importantly redefine school readiness school yeah. readiness is the school will be ready for every child mm-hmm. that's the definition of school readiness yeah do you do you see that as a as a reality is that something that we could achieve i don't care if it's real or not it's yeah. my mantra i'm going to push it until it happens i mean <laughs> um you know and the the i don't know if you read the article i did on um Guerrilla teaching practices. Oh, yeah. We did an episode about that article. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In there, I point out that every um, great educator, Dewey, um, Fribble, uh, Waldorf, uh, Montessori, were radicals. Uh-huh. They, they went against the um, thinking of the times, and I'm going against the thinking of the times. I'm mm-hmm. saying we need to be radical. We need to say this is what kids need. Yeah. And I I think that's one of the things that scares me the most about the new position statement is there's, there's nothing radical about it. It, No, no. there's, there's nothing that seems like it's taking a stand for children. To me, it seems very much more focused on adults and adult processes and adult goals. Well, I'll go one step forward further. I think that we're using children to fulfill adult needs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. One of the things that occurred to me too, that I, I guess I I wanted to get your opinion on before we're done um, is if, if we can't say that there's anything um, that is a best practice and we can't say that there are any absolutes um, then, then how does that balance with the other sort of campaign to make sure all teachers have degrees and all teachers have these qualifications, um, which I don't necessarily disagree with. I just don't know that I think we're teaching the right things in those programs, but but do you see a disconnect there too? Well, I see a disconnect with everything we're doing until we do one thing. Nothing is going to change until we pay our early childhood folks what they need and that uh, an equitable pay uh, and benefits. And to me, that's, the same as an elementary school teacher in the local school. Mm-hmm. Nothing else is going to change. We can talk all we want about best practices. We can talk all we want about anti-bias education. We can talk all we want about STEM education. But until we respect our, our teachers and caregivers by paying them and giving them benefits, we're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's all, in my view, it's all antithetical until we get that done. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big, a big job. <laughs> and, and, and it's it's absolutely frightening to me to say, to see people saying, well, degrees are more important without paying people. That's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, that is absolutely crazy. Yeah, I know. I, I was looking at um, uh, 
what a college website that was like um, trying to recruit people to yeah. early childhood programs. And it had your projected salary and it said something like $14 an hour. <laughs> I yeah. Like, I don't yeah. think that's the medium median salary in any well, area for early childhood. Right. Well, we had a discussion in our early childhood meeting the last one where the state of Colorado is going to put money into um, people getting early childhood degrees. And I, of course, my immediate response was, are they going to put money in early child salaries? And they mm-hmm. said no. And I said, well, why would you get a degree if you don't get yeah. There's no value in the investment. It's yeah. kind of stupid. Yeah, absolutely. The whole, the whole idea about college degrees is an investment. And then mm-hmm. you don't get your money back. Right, right. Well, I think that's what we need your next article to be about. <laughs> well, actually, I, I did submit one. I, she hasn't looked at it yet, where yeah. I look at our future, and I think I have four items, and that's the first one. Oh, yeah. I look forward to that. So hopefully um, they'll accept it and publish it. Yeah, yeah. So again, the article that we've been talking about is called Unpacking Developmentally Appropriate Practice. If you don't subscribe to Exchange, um, it's really reasonable. It's like maybe $10 a year to get just access to the articles online. Um, but I would really recommend that folks look up this article and your others. The Gorilla Teaching Tactics article was so good. Um, and, and of course, the Oh Boy book, I think, can be yeah. really transformational. Uh, let me mention two that I know are coming up, which I think are really important. One is about color, uh, colorism within um, minority groups and how it can affect the way we look at children in our programs. Oh. And, and the other is a similar one, which is hair and how, you know, in minority, particularly the black community, there's ideas of good hair and bad hair, and we need to make sure that doesn't seep into our early childhood program, which again is, you know, the cultural piece that we don't want to have. Yeah. 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 Both well, um, I, I thank you so much for your work, Dr. Wardle, and for your time to be on the, sh- on the podcast again. Um, and hopefully, uh, as, as you keep publishing, you'll keep coming on and talking <laughs> with us. Well, I certainly appreciate the time and the opportunity to further discuss what to me are critical issues. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I always find something good when I'm reading something that you've written. So thank, thank you again you. for your time and thank you everybody for listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd. And we'll see you again next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.